Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sit next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming back. And uh, just like I said last episode, hey, guys, if you take anything away from these uh, away from these talks, these conversations, uh, these after actions that we're putting out here, and you, if you take one thing away from it and you know one person that could likewise take something from it, we just ask you to uh, not be selfish with it, share it out, share it out to the people that you know it can affect. And with that, we'll get right into it. <clears throat> As American citizens, it's easy to take for granted the freedoms that are assured to you. Not often do American citizens become fully informed of the different defenses that are in place for their protections. There are movies, sure, and different stories that have become widely known. But for the most part, the more secretive the operation in play, the less informed America is. And this includes Americans that hold high governmental titles. Tonight, our guest is here to talk about many different topics, but the opportunity, uh, the reason the opportunity is even possible spawned out of the catastrophic withdrawal of Afghanistan. In trying to find the good in all situations, it's important to note that I'm not happy about the circumstances that got us here. Rather, I find them too important not to discuss. As an American fighting man or woman, it is important to recruit and trust help in foreign countries as we have language barriers and other adversities. During the invasion of Marja in Afghanistan in 2010, one of these young recruits was set to be an interpreter for Kilo Company 3rd Battalion 6 Marines. For nearly eight months in Marja, our interpreters risked life, limb, and sanity for the brothers to the left and right. All of them did so without an issued weapon, depending literally on the Marines to the left and right for their lives. The United States policy regarding the war in Afghanistan changed as the new administration came in, as happens many times when the party majority changes. This is one of the constant issues that, in my estimation, plagues the DOD and DOJ alike. In this, change, the full, uh, in this change, the full withdrawal of American troops from the country was moved up seemingly and seemingly negotiated with leading members of the Taliban. With the exodus underway, the country be began to quickly fall to the Taliban and rogue elements, ultimately falling in towards Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul. After promising the people of the United States that this would not be a repeat of the exodus from Vietnam, that's exactly what happened. To add insult to injury, many decisions were made at the ex executive and operational levels that hindered the support to the region. As consequence of these operational decisions, many American citizens and special immigrant visa paper holders were left to their own devices, and after the city collapsed to the airport, help dwindled quickly. From my house in Camp Lejeune, I received a phone call from one of my Marines in the squad in the Marja deployment. He filled me in on our interpreter, our friend's situation, telling me that someone needed to do something. Someone needed to help. He was loyal to our country and his alike and promised to be out of that place. And now it was falling apart. From my garage, I paced and I thought and I paced and I thought. I knew that this should be on the news and it wasn't. I decided to reach out to my friend to gather more information, and the things that he began to report to me were unreal that they hadn't reached the news. It was 
odd to me that a humanitarian crisis was literally unfolding in front of us Two people that had been helping us and allies with us and there was no coverage after some ins and outs and some lucky correspondence with fox news i was able to uh, get on some primetime coverage on fox and illuminate some of the humanitarian crisis that was going on by midnight the following evening i was contacted by a state department official who was working through back channels as she put it to help me with my guy. I was given hotlines and resources, but none of them were connecting me to real people. Everything went to a robot. Most of it was automated, nothing of real help. By the following day, I was contacted again, this time by a retired Marine Corps intelligence officer by the name of Jonathan Myers. He messaged me and said, they told me to find you. After some correspondence back and forth and some information passing, help seemed not as faint as it once did. Over his time, Lieutenant Colonel Myers helped hundreds and thousands of SIV and American citizens out of the conflict zone. Many AMSITs and SIV holders would not be safe and alive today without people like Lieutenant Colonel Myers. He's also the author of the book American to the Core. And in this book, as you can see, hold, let me hold it up for you. In this book, it accounts several of uh, of the bigger intelligence operations that Lieutenant Colonel Myers was in. Uh, Iraq, uh, Scott O'Grady out of Bosnia, the, the Benghazi investigation from the USMC, the Snowden investigation, uh, a lot of great stories. Today, we'll cover briefly just some topics in it, but uh, but a great book. And uh, and as you see when we cover it, you're, you're, you're going to get you're going to get hooked. You're going to want to go pick this up. There's a lot more detail than in the book than what we'll cover. So uh, without further ado, Lieutenant Colonel Myers, thank you so much for uh, making time out and squaring it away. I know we've been talking about uh, having this talk for, you know, a couple of a couple of weeks now, several weeks now, and I just appreciate you taking the time and and, uh, and joining us to to get some of it out there. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I look forward to talking about it. Absolutely. So a, a lot of times what I like to do when I'm starting with guests, obviously, that I don't know, uh, which is most of them. I had my brother uh, recorded recently, and that was good. I knew him, didn't have to ask much. But I like to start at the beginning. I read the book, so I have a little bit of a backstory on that. But if you could just tell the listeners, you know, uh, let's just start with growing up and the formidable years coming up and then kind of work into your uh, catalyst to service, let's say. Sure. So uh, I was actually... Um raised in Virginia. My family history goes way back in Virginia to the beginning, 1609 at Jamestown. I won't wow. get into all that, but long, long history of military service. No Marines though. I was the first Marine. So right. uh, some people, some people might've been rolling over in their graves if they knew that <laughs> some of the, some of the Navy people, but um, uh -oh. so, uh, you know, raised a single mom, uh, father abandoned the family, you know, to the typical story. Um, and then my mom met a Marine when she was going to night school and I was six or seven years old. And uh, he had a huge influence on me, obviously, joining the Marine Corps. I mean, my my obsession became Marine Corps at, from that point on. Mm. So, uh, you know, it was all I thought about. It was all I was for Halloween. It was all I wanted to do. So when the time came around, I, you know, I competed. Uh, my parents were both intelligence agents for the Central Intelligence Agency, both case officers. Um, which I didn't know until I was 17 years old. Um, and if you, if you get the book, you'll, you'll read how that transpired. But uh, so we ended up leaving Virginia and living overseas for, you know, the rest of my life from the time I was 10 until I went to college and uh, went to George Washington University and uh, competed for Marine Corps scholarship. And, you know, that's the beginning of the story. And 
so commissioned in 1992 as an intelligence officer and served for 28 years. And uh, during the course of my career, I was able, fortunate enough to participate um, in most of the, a lot of the high profile missions that the Marine Corps participated in during the period from 1992 until I retired in 2020. So that included the Scott O'Grady mission. It included the invasion of Iraq with General Mattis. It included um, the uh, investigation of Edward Snowden's theft from the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps portion of it. It included, um, I was the OIC of the response effort for Benghazi. So the Marines going in to reinforce the embassy and to be prepared be prepared to uh, you know, reestablish a presence at Benghazi after the attack. Mm-hmm. And then I finished up my career on the joint staff, oddly enough, working for General Milley as one of his intelligence officers. I was the director of regional intelligence for the J-5 plans for the joint staff. So that's how I ended my career. And then, you know, you and I came together through the Afghanistan situation, which was after I had already been retired and mm-hmm. was planning on moving on with my life and you know, spending time with the family and we're now living overseas due to my wife's job. So the, it completely out of the blue, I had no plan to participate in Afghanistan. And then you know, that's where our story started. Sure, sure. And I'd like to get more into that. Uh, if you can, I'd like to know your side of it leading up to the withdrawal. And and I was, it's interesting because I didn't know, maybe it was in the book, maybe not, but I didn't pick up that you were on the joint chief, uh, on the joint staff for, for Millie. And that's interesting because that gives you an inside look at how these people are working, you know, way more than, than, than let's say I would, I have to get my information, you know, off legacy media, which, you know, I, which I don't even trust most of the time. Right. So having somebody that actually knows these people actually in is, is going to be probably draw some questions, both, operational and tactical questions from me uh as we go on but let's just start with your your spin up to uh to the fall and the withdrawal um and if you were already in the staff what did you know about the planning efforts leading up to that you know 2020 time frame coming up so the concept that somebody would propose that we just leave and that there be no u.s force presence that wasn't even discussed when i was on the joint staff Mm -hmm. so the, the, the intel analysts who would have handled Afghanistan were working for me and, you know, the ones supporting the J-5 director of plans and the J-3 director of operations on the joint staff. Um, and there was absolutely no discussion whatsoever of just taking off in the middle of the night with no planning and not leaving any forces. I mean, it would have been a completely foreign concept. And if when I was on the joint staff, if somebody had said that, we would all look at them like they were crazy. You know, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't even discussed. And um, they were fully, I mean, we were fully briefing the capabilities of the Taliban and the possibility of the Taliban taking Afghanistan back over. And what I always like to say is, um, if you asked anybody the rank of colonel and above, you're going to get one answer as to whether or not the Taliban is going to take over Afghanistan after we leave. If you ask anybody lieutenant colonel and below, especially you guys having served there and worked alongside the regular Afghan National Army, not your special forces allies or your translators, you're going to give a completely different answer. And is that does that speak to the difference between the operational level uh, leadership and the tactical level? I mean, that's basically the split, right? The strategic level and the operational level is where the split is, I think, because once you're colonel 
and general officer, it becomes politics. It's mm. all politics. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked for General Milley when he showed up. The day he showed up as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, I briefed him, amongst others, to get him spun up. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny because after our initial impression and briefings, you know, the first couple of weeks, uh, we were calling him mini Trump mm. because he really seemed to be like the military version. And we were we were telling each other, oh, yeah, yeah, I can I can see why they picked why uh, President Trump picked this guy. Yeah, they seem a lot alike, mm. you know, and then as the political winds changed and President Trump loses the election, you know, then all of a sudden he changes. So it just it really shows how at the general officer level, they will meld their position or their strategies based on whoever the political uh, influence is that they're getting. And, you know, so like I said, you ask a general what was going to happen in Afghanistan and they're going to tell you, oh, yeah, the, the Afghan National Army is ready to take over. You know, we've we've had metrics and we've trained them. But if you asked some Marines out in the field, what do they think of the Afghan National Army? You know, you're going to get a completely different answer. hundred percent. 100 yeah. percent couldn't agree more we and, and and it changed too like um i know at least in 10 when we invaded our first kandak was fire they were awesome they were hardened they'd fought before they knew how to fight and then every kandak after that which was basically you know the new guys coming out of boot camp it you know it was everything from mexican standoffs with grenades because we told them to get on get on post or they'd be aiming you know marines like just standing off right before a patrol because they didn't want to do something that you told them to do or things like that that we had to deal with so then you ask somebody is that army ready to take over like no they didn't want to be there in the first place is the way we felt you know that's the that's the impression you get from a lot of the different candidates but um yes yeah, interesting so and when you guys are briefing these and and it never comes up that we're just going to leave, um, then the, then the political ties change. Is it almost like you it, these people at the top, the the Millie characters are it's yes man because it's so political that they'll lose their job. Like is that That's what why. it becomes? Yes, I mean not get fired out of the army and lose his four star status, but lose the the prominent position as chairman, you know, once you start the, the colonels who know they're selected for brigadier and then, you know, once brigadiers looking at major general and lieutenant general, they don't want to jeopardize uh, promotion. So they start to give the answers that people want to hear. So, you know, when a general goes in front of Congress and talks about Afghanistan, he's going to say, you know, it's great. We've, we've, we've had all these metrics and we've done all the training, you know, because they want to show progress and, like that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, yes, definitely. It becomes overtly political. And then, you know, so you ask the troops like you guys and junior officers and up to Lieutenant Colonel, they're gonna give you the ground truth, but the people don't know the ground truth, which is why they were so shocked when everything just fell apart. People are like, well, I don't understand how it just fell apart. All the, the generals and everybody was saying how great it was, you know? Mm -hmm. It's it's the age old story though. I mean that's been going on forever, right? Mm -hmm. You see it in the movies, you see it in pop culture. The generals are politicians, and they say something different. Correct. Yeah, I see that a lot now. And we just had a situation in the Marine Corps that came up. We talked offline with uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Stu Scheller, who spoke out against this. So he makes some YouTubes that he goes he goes uh, overtly at upper echelon Marine Corps about needless loss of life and the the lack of comrade and the lack of planning at at the uh 
you know, operational level. And he comes in, you know, hard. And the Marine Corps came hard right back at him, relieved him within 48 hours. Um, and he's still going hard, going on tours around the nation, talking uh, to every outlet and big podcast agency that he can. Because I think the way that he sees it is if we don't start holding people accountable for these um these withdrawals like like if nobody's ever held accountable then it's just we're 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 bound to continue to repeat it would you would you agree with that sentiment and if so how who do you hold accountable in a situation like this yeah i agree with the sentiment um obviously all of us as marines knew exactly how that was going to play out with the marine corps Mm. right i mean Mm. we all have the stories about the the Lance Corporal that, that wrote a letter to his congressman because he didn't like having to stand duty on Christmas, you know, and, and how the, they, they absolutely always get slammed by the Marine Corps. I mean, that's just the way it works. So we could all see that that was going to happen to the lieutenant colonel. But it was it was very uh, brave for him to do that because I think he reached the point where he realized nobody was going to be held accountable. So he was willing to just make that sacrifice, you know, and and get the big green weenie or whatever they call it, you know, get the hammer. And that's exactly what happened. But um, yeah, all along that whole process that this was unfolding, there was numerous people who really should have, as Lieutenant Colonel Scheller said, thrown their rank on the table and been like, yeah, no, we we can't do this. Um, But they just didn't. And again, it goes back to the conversation we were having about people protecting their careers and protecting their rank you know, mm-hmm. and, and a, a guy like Lieutenant Colonel Scheller is senior, but not at the the uppermost level. So maybe he, he felt like he didn't have as much to lose, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. And I think there's a lot of, um, just from what I gather, this is a man that has built wealth. This is a man that doesn't need his pension, a man that doesn't need his retirement. And that puts him in a, in a unique situation that I would venture to say 90 plus percent of most Marines are not in. They're not in a situation just to lose the funding today and still be all right and float and have, you know, uh, stick enough sticks in the fire. And and I would say that there's generally a good bit of Marines, but it's not most of them, especially the younger ones. And so for him to have that courage to go out, kind of martyr himself, and I think he knew what was coming. Um, I haven't talked to him personally, but from what I gather, he knew that they were going to come down hard on him. There was no doubt about it. And, and and then give him the option just to quietly walk away and retire or double down and make another video. And, you know, we know what happened, but I think that the uh, I think that the point of view that he has is is important. And but I would say also, like, you have to follow through with that, like we talked about offline, in my opinion, uh, making making the effort is good. But if you don't follow that all the way through and then affect change at the highest levels, then I fear that you that it was a selfish ploy for for a political platform on the personal side, right? And that's what I would fear. What I've read of him, what I've talked to the people that have been underneath him, underneath of his command, um, I haven't got the first sour word, the first sour marine, nothing. So highly likely that this is the guy that that makes the waves and then rides them all the way until they crash. Um, but what that will mean, I don't know. And then how do you say, what say you to hold, to accountability? How do we hold a, a General McKenzie or a General Milley accountable for uh, these, kind of, these kind of things? 
Well, we just have to hope that there'll be a shift in the political uh, weight in in Washington, D.C., in the Congress and, and the Senate, and then eventually one day somebody will be able to launch an investigation, you know, or hearings on how this all unfolded. Right now, with the House controlled uh, by the Democrats, there's, you know, they're not going to get the support they need to, to have hearings or an investigation, or if they do, it will be, uh, it won't raise to the prominence it needs to, to, you know, have some people held accountable. But I, I think in the future that there will be hearings, there will be an investigation. Uh, I'm sure if, if things, if, if sides switch, there will be, and there could be some account accountability in the future. Yeah, I, I guess my so. question would be, what does accountability look like though? Cause I think like if you hammer, let's say you hammer the general, that's going to make, I think other generals more gun shy even even more so to come to the helm and like i don't know what to do like because if i don't do what i you know what i mean so like what is the proper accountability is it that you retire and you no longer command troops um forcibly whether you wanted to or not and now we get new blood in there and we say hey, this can't happen again like i just feel like if the, i feel like if you go heavy-handed there can be uh diminishing return and if you don't go heavy enough then you didn't prove a point and it didn't affect change so I don't know what accountability looks like, I guess. Well, it doesn't look like how you probably want it to look. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're, in the future, there'll be some hearings and investigations, congressional hearings, and they'll put out a report that states, you know, how it went down and who, who uh, made the wrong decisions. But in the end, you know, yeah. come on, nothing's going to happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, the generals who were involved will probably already be retired yep. by that point. And the politicians who were responsible will be out of office. So it, there's, I, I don't think that there's any way for them to show that there was anything criminal that bad leaders did. It, it's just they'll be able to show what bad leaders they were. But mm -hmm. And then we look at that be, as a lessons learned. Is that the absolutely, idea? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But, you know, we, we had lessons learned from the fall of Saigon as well. And, I mean, they obviously didn't stick because it was uh, – it was virtually the exact same situation, only worse. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I hate to be such a pessimist, but in in the long run, the accountability will be uh, showing that we know that it was messed up. You know, officially. But officially, mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's going to be held to account. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in this is a little uh, a detract, but in your in your capacity, official capacity across the board, not only Marine Corps, but as, you know, a civilian, you've worked for multiple administrations. Um, and when the, when the, the party flips, it seems like to me that all the initiatives, the funding, everything gets shuffled. And so in school, I learned about this, you know, more than anything, doing a Homeland Security degree. And it's got to be torturous to be a project lead or any kind of managerial staff in any DOD or DOJ around that time. Because you're maybe in your second or third year of working towards a goal and closing. And then the party changes and money allocations flip, funding allocations flip, personnel actual projects going from being full go to now they're shut down. And like, did you deal with, with, with that too much, uh, parochial government, uh, uh, attitudes every, everywhere you went or, or at all, or was that something you were able to stay clear of? 
most part stayed cleared of it as a Marine Corps officer. You know, I did work at the State Department for 10 years mm -hmm. as a civilian because I was a reservist. Mm -hmm. So I was the, um, I managed the domestic security policy and budget for the State Department, which ironically, as I mentioned in the book, I took the job. It sounds like the most boring job in the world, like <laughs> managing domestic security policy and budget. Who cares, right? Mm -hmm. you know? But I took the job in July of 2001 and then September of 2001, everybody cared about domestic security mm. policy and budget. So as a Marine, no, I never dealt with that. But at the State Department, for sure. But it wasn't in the way that you're describing where, you know, we had funds and uh, programs set up to do something that most of us agreed we wanted to do. And then all of a sudden the administration changed and they took that money away. It was the opposite because of 9-11 all of a sudden we had all this money, mm. you know, Congress was throwing money at us, you know, $80 million, you know, this time to do more security at embassies around the world. And so, yeah, I've dealt with it, but it, it didn't impact me the way that, you, that you're talking about, which, okay. you know, where they take stuff away from you. Yeah, the, I, think, I think that's that great to hear. The, mm -hmm. the Marine Corps that happens to you all the time, but I, I didn't work as as a policy uh, aid to any Marine Corps generals, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. I don't know how that played out for them. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So that's interesting. And, and another thing, um, matter of fact, if you don't mind, I got a couple passages I'd like to hit in the book and then, and then we can kind of talk about those. Um, I'm just going to start chronologically. So we'll go backwards a little bit from where we were. And I want to start with the introduction just to give people an idea of what they're getting into when they pick the book up. Um, says, at the onset of my career, I had no way of knowing the circumstances of fate thrust me into the center of so many high-profile pro high national security events in the last 30 years. In fact, to many other Marine officers, the running joke became that I was Forrest Gump of Marine Corps officers. Over the years, as I told these stories to friends, families, peers, and acquaintances, and received positive feedback, I began to believe that others may be interested in learning about them as well. This book is not intended to be an academic read with deep analysis and tech technical nuance behind each and every national security event I was involved with. Instead, consider it a collection of anecdotes about Marine Corps life, as well as a firsthand account of some of the most intriguing events that uh, intriguing events and people of our time. And then you kind of get into the start of the book, <clears throat> talking about your formidable years growing up and coming up there. Um, I, I like the opening of your book, and I'll say because you uh, you don't leave it to illusion to what the reader's about to get in. You state from the beginning, this is not academic an academic read. This is just to give you, it's almost like sea stories. This is my experiences as I've had them. And, uh, and I like that format. I like that personal format that you put on that. And... Um, and I think you did, I, I, for, for me, you did a hell of a job because it was, it was a very uh, a gripping book. You went from, you know, kind of big event to big event, and, um, and I enjoyed that. So we'll get into the first big event, which was uh, working, working through the rescue. And this is uh, page 37. New River Air Station became the home of the Rotary, Rotary Wing Aircraft Squadron, 2nd Marine Air Wing. The fixed wings of the 2nd Marine Air Wing were located about 45 minutes away in Cherry Point, North Carolina. My first assignment was to be an assistant intelligence officer in the Marine Air Group 29, MAG-29. I spent the first five months learning the ropes through uh, on-the-job training since there was no seat for me at the formal intelligence school until several months later. This was before the Internet existed and before Marines even had computers at their desks. 
I spent most of my days reading the Marine Corps manual, working out Marine things, doing Marine things, and studying the read board. The read board was the day's classified intelligence reporting. It was printed on uh, it was printed out in a secure facility, placed in a metal document binder, and then passed around the building, starting with the commanding officer and working its way down to Second Lieutenant Myers. It was never to be left unintended. At least the guilty party. Uh, Less the guilty party wanted a security violation and subsequent investigation. Because I was a lonely second lieutenant, the book had about 30 other hands to pass through before it got to me. Sometimes well after the normal hour, uh, normal end of uh, end of duty hours. The funny thing is, all these years later, much of the intelligence that was in that book from early 1993 talked mostly about Saddam Hussein and the weapons of mass destruction he had access to. In fact, intelligence officers in those days were 100% convinced that the man had the weapons. It amused me in the early 2000s when so many people said George W. Bush and his cronies made all that up on the spot. We had been briefing that Saddam, uh, that Saddam had them a decade before any of that was even discussed day in and day out. And I just kind of like to hear your side of that. Like, because we only know in America, I talk about it before, we're misinformed or uninformed. And I think it's by design. But so, so constantly in today's age, you have all this misinformation going around. Either it's partisan smear attack campaigns or it's just to get somebody at a company uh, relieved, canceled, or fired. So you being, being there at the time or, and knowing these things, what is it, is it your firm belief still that he absolutely had access to these things? Well, I can't say that it was my it's my firm belief now that he had access to them, because, in, you know, after everything played out, it turns out it might have been a bluff. He might have actually been creating the image that he had a lot of uh, weapons of mass destruction to protect himself from us invading and from his neighbors from Iran and, and, and other neighbors in the region. So mm. th that is a different situation. But if, if you're talking about 1993, uh, U.S. intelligence, 100 percent convinced and had the evidence the intelligence collection to back it up that saddam had these weapons mm. now after we rolled in there and took everything over and then we had control of all of his weapons depots there was some intel that said that some of it might have slipped over into syria but for the most part we didn't find anything right but that was an intelligence failure because saddam was able to fool us into thinking that he had them mm. uh, but but the intel community knew, thought, knew that he had them. So when, when it, you know, come to the beginning of the Iraq war, all that intelligence that um, uh, Colin Powell and President Bush were rolling out, that was stuff that we've been briefing for years and years and years. This wasn't, you know, then the, the political process got involved and the media got involved and all of a sudden it was George W. Bush and Dick Cheney made this up as a false flag in order to invade Iraq to get revenge for trying to assassinate George H.W. Bush, and it was personal for George W. Bush. That that was all just noise. Noise, yeah. Because, like, as I said in the book, we've been briefing that. We, we absolutely 100% believed it to be true a decade before any of that came out. Let alone a decade later, what could he possibly have now if we've been briefing it for a decade? Yeah, I get that. And so when you say it was an intelligence failure, you're saying strictly just because we were duped. We were duped into thinking yes. that, like, he did a good enough job to present off and on uh, line that he that he possessed these things and would use them. Now, yes, and the important thing is he didn't do it so much to you know make the U.S. look bad or to to 
make George W. Bush look bad. He did that to protect himself, to maintain his power and image in the Middle East mm -hmm. with Iran, with Syria, with, you know, all the countries surrounding him. Uh, mm -hmm. It offered him a level of protection. That's that's primarily why he was doing it. The side benefit was to, to make us look like idiots. But, you know, it also ended up getting his country invaded and getting him executed. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting. And yeah, that's wild. It's just wild how much misinformation and I think they're calling malinformation now, like intent to uh, to swing people one way or another. And and more and more, I, I think it's even more polarized now in our nation than it was in 2000 or 2001 when we went. Um, it, it's pretty and social media for that. Yeah, and 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 that's a lot to the recruitment, and then and then building these echo chambers, right? These partisan echo, echo chambers where there's not diverse thought coming in. It's just here's my way, and this is the way I like to hear it. So I'm gonna stay inside this and hear all of this, and we're not right. not investigating or or even doing due diligence as far as uh, investigating our own thoughts, like outside the box, outside outside of our thoughts. It's all confirmation bias, and. Um, and I don't know how to battle that other than try to get more forums out there that aren't altering anything for a political scheme. And, um, and so, yeah, anyway, uh, next one I got, uh, this is going to your sea stories. When you met the number two coolest guy in the world, this is one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, uh, I'm just going to cover a little bit of it. You're going to have to pick the book up on your own to get all of it, but we'll start right here. It says the transatlantic journey Sorry, let me move that. The transatlantic journey on a U.S. Navy ship usually takes about a week under normal conditions at cruising speed. The Trans-Pacific takes longer, about 10 days. Not hauling ass, as they say, just drifting along. At the end of the deployment, about halfway through the transatlantic journey, there was usually what was referred to in the Navy and Marines as a steel beach picnic. During the steel beach picnic, all aircraft and equipment are stored on the lower decks of the ship instead of the top and the flight deck becomes a giant outdoor party. Each Marine and sailor is authorized two beers, which are kept in the lower parts of the ship and brought up for this occasion. Barrel-style grills are brought out, and enough hot dogs and hamburgers and ribs to feed 3,000. During our return from the 1995 deployment in which we rescued Scott O'Grady, we had a steel beach picnic. The Marines and sailors participated in, uh, in races, volleyball, touch football, and anything at all, that they wanted to do, even if it was just sit and get some sun. During this day, the ocean was still and the wind was barely perceptible, just a breeze. When you're in the middle of the ocean, a day with no wind is very rare. Typically, even if there's no flight operations, the wind alone makes the flight deck a very noisy place as it flows across your ears. But on a day like this one, with no wind, the ocean turns to glass like a giant still lake. Silence. For people who don't like the water or fear of the deep, dark ocean, this wouldn't be for them. You can hear the fish jump for 400, uh, 400 yards and the sharks that stir, stir the water. On this day, in the very middle of the Atlantic Ocean, with the ship barely moving in the forward direction, the Marines and sailors enjoyed their barbecue, beers, and games. As I sat on the flight deck with my buddies, reminiscing about the recent Liberty ports in, on, in the deployment, there was, uh, there was a stir near the bow of the ship. I turned and looked and saw people running to the port side, of the flight deck, hollering, waving, cheering, and high-fiving each other. I got up and also moved to that side of the flight deck, and that's when I saw it. There, alone, in the middle of the Atlantic, was a 30-foot sailboat 
catching the slight breeze in its mainsail, with an attractive lady in a bikini lying on the deck, and a tanned, dark-haired man, and nothing but a Speedo and sunglasses at the helm drinking a beer, smiling and waving at 3,000 American military men and a few female sailors, which is not common in the mid-90s, who all had run to greet them. I wondered briefly if having 3,000 of us on one side of the ship may capsize us, which is totally stupid. Of course it wouldn't. <laughs> As the sailboats uh, silently glided by, the woman didn't stir, like it was no big deal at all and like they did this all the time. Just then, our captain came on to the giant loudspeaker that he can control from the ship's bridge. Attention, sailing vessel. This is the USS Carsage of the United States Navy. Do you need assistance? The man just held up his beer, shook his head side to side, to side in a very clear nope, and kept cruising right by. And that is how I encountered the second coolest man in the world. I, I laughed out loud pretty hard when I read that part. And I could only imagine, like, that's pretty, that's got to be wild to be out there every day. You're not seeing anything but your giant ships. And then one day, like, no land anywhere. What are they doing? Yeah. You know, yeah, walk- it's great. Some of the things you see out in the ocean, you know, it, most Marines spend a lot of time on ship. I personally have spent like three years of my life on Navy ships. So you just, it's a whole different world out there mm. you know, that people don't even understand. You know, you, you it's like you're out there traveling and doing things and seeing stuff and some of the stuff you see the weather and the the incidents you know there's another incident i get into with the jet skier that came up on us you know 80 <laughs> miles out in the ocean and it's just craziness but uh yeah that guy i don't even I, he I, he was obviously european from yeah the <laughs> but, uh, was she european too country. I, yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would need more information to tell that. But yeah. yeah. Tan lines and such. Uh, that's funny, man. I love that part of the book. I, I was one of the ones that when I was talking to these guys, like, what are we going to talk about? They definitely talking about the number two coolest guy in the world. That's a fact. Well, well, you know, something you mentioned earlier about the way I wrote my book is <clears throat> because I was had a, I had a lot of anxiety about it. Mm. You know, I, I wanted to write. People kept telling me, you got all this information and all these things you did. You really should write it down so your kids can know what you did. You sure. So my original intent was to write like a, a memoir because my uncle had written one about our early family in Virginia in Jamestown. So mm. I thought that was cool that my uncle wrote that. And I knew all about that. I'm going to write this stuff down so my kids know about it. But I'd have anxiety all the time because like I, I wasn't like you guys, you know, I wasn't kicking doors and, and, pulling triggers every single day. Mm. You can write a book about that and people will read that book alone just for that. Mm. You know, that's not the kind of career I had. It wasn't the kind of Marine I was. So Mm. I had a lot of anxiety about it, but uh, my, my wife, you know, gave me encouragement all the time and said, you could just write it so that each chapter is a standalone Mm -hmm. story, which makes it good for the reader too, because they can read a chapter, put it down and not have to feel like, well, I got to keep going because I have to see what's what's going to happen next, you know. Absolutely. So that's the that's the way the book ended up being, and and it gave me an opportunity to put stuff like the story you just told about this the sailboat with the lady in the bikini in the mm. middle of the Atlantic. You know, mm-hmm. Because how are you going to fit? How else will you fit that into a book? Sure. Except to have a have a chapter of sea stories, and we all have sea stories, which usually are you know lies, but in this case, <laughs> they're, they're actually true. Right, right. Yeah, I I found it. um, I know the anxiety you speak of. I know when I was writing my book, 
it was the same kind of thing. Like, well, what do you put in and what are, you know, what's going to be gripping. And for me, it was much easier. Like my whole book is just about one deployment, you know what I mean? So it's not, not even the career. And then my opinion is like, if I added all this stuff in my career, the, the life of a grunt is 99% boredom. Like 99% of the time you didn't do anything. You went into a dry hole. You went and the enemy wasn't there. You went and the enemy didn't want to fight or you went to the wrong place or whatever. Right. And then that 1% of the time when it's saucy though, you can get a book about it and people read it. And, um, but I had a lot too. Like I'd never, I'd never wrote one and then I self published. So that was weird to, it, it was a, it was a learning experience. That's a fact. And so, uh, yeah, I loved your book. We're going to read a little bit more of it about the State Department right now. So this one I have out, this is um, just the beginning of the State Department chapter. It says, for a brief time after I left active duty, I worked as a defense contractor in Northern, uh, Northern Virginia, assisting in the management of the program to develop a, a portable computing capability for the Marine Corps called a Data Automated Computer Terminal, a DACT. In the pre-smartphone era, it was a device about the size of a shoebox that was supposed to provide connectivity amongst marine units and vehicles with the data being transmitted via radio that had some ability to transmit data. I actually got bored writing the description just now. <laughs> and if you think that I was bored writing about it, actually doing it was worse. The piece of equipment was total crap and my exposure to working as a defense contractor whose sole purpose was to convince the U.S. government that they had to have it. When I knew full well it was a piece of junk. Um, really sounded, oh, I'm sorry, when I full well knew it was a piece of junk, really uh, soured me on the defense contracting business. But this company had a contract with the U.S. government which said that X number of people would be working on this system. So that's what they had. Even though the work was limited and the equipment was terrible, my, work exp uh, my whole experiment in working with the defense system contractor lasted a few months. My dissatisfaction with the job was evident to my employer as well, and my tendency to speak whatever was on my mind didn't help me much in the long run, especially when I told the company boss that the equipment was a piece of junk. Apparently telling your company that the one primary contract, uh, contract vehicles and, and equipment under development is a total piece of crap is frowned upon. Who knew? We decided mutually that it would be best if I left, which I did in short order. I had no backup plan, but I was hoping that I was hoping that my tendency to fall into interesting assignments would somehow land me in an opportunity. I was just a few months out from getting married to Valerie, my girlfriend of three years who worked as a technical writer for a technology company. I was unemployed for the first time in my adult life, though I still had the Marine Corps reserve income to rely on, completing my regularly scheduled training for drills each month. As a Marine, I was working for the Marine Corps intelligence, researching potential intelligence threats to the United States. One such uh, study I completed was on the likelihood that terrorists to, a, uh, to attempt to hijack airplanes using innovative techniques such as pen knives or box cutters. This was in the spring and early summer of 2001. I took a lot of ribbing from my fellow Marine Intelligence counterparts for this wacky idea, but I submitted my study to the commander where I'm sure it was probably filed away in a warehouse where the Indiana Jones stored the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I know you say that facetiously, but it's very interesting that just before, you know, the attacks of 9-11 on 9-11, you're submitting this into hire and people are laughing at you about it. And so can you kind of go into, I know that it was out of the box. It, seemingly, it seems like it was out of the box enough for people to, you know, to rib you and poke fun. But can you go into the research of how you came up with this idea and then 
what was it like post 9-11 with those same counterparts? Um, geez, that's been, you know, 22, 22 years ago that I wrote that report. So I don't, I don't know that I recollect all the details of how I came to the information, but it, it was, so what we did back then pre-war, you know, Intel analysts, we would go through the traffic. Now we had the internet and computers. So our, our time was spent filtering through hundreds of thousands of, uh, message traffic messages, you know, intelligence classified stuff. And mm -hmm. I was just doing research on uh, Al Qaeda and other Middle East terror groups. And I guess some of the research I came across was talking about um, different uh, complex or unique creative things they possibly were looking into to conduct attacks because it was becoming more difficult to try and attack us. Um, we were increasing security because of the, the attack in, uh, on the towers and you know, in the nineties when they tried to bomb the towers. And mm -hmm. So one of the, one of the messages I came across talked about alternative methodologies for creating weapons, which include cutting, you know, sharp edged cutting techniques and things besides explosives. So mm. I just got this harebrained idea that, you know, somebody could possibly try it because we weren't checking for those things at airport security that they could possibly try to get them through security to hijack a plane. Now mm. I, Obviously, I didn't touch on that they would try to take the planes and use them as missiles. It was more like hijacking a plane, like the 1972 hijacking of the Middle East. Um, and of course, you know, we had to brief our our stuff. So I briefed it at the, you know, it was kind of getting a lot of eye rolls and, you know, people not really paying attention because it didn't seem that important. And some of my closer buddies, you know, giving me crap afterwards that mm -hmm. it, was, it was wacky. So um, then after it actually happened <clears throat> that way. You know, you say, what was the reaction then from those people? Well, I mean, it, you know, they still gave me crap, but sure. <laughs> just a, Why a lot of acknowledgement, it? like, wow, you, I don't know how you, that you really hit the nail on the head with that. But that was, they, they, they uh, chalked it up to me being lucky yeah. more than any sort of skill. But like, like you said, I mean, it hadn't gotten out of the command, the report. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not claiming to be the guy that called 9 11. I'm just the guy that, happened to write a report about terrorists possibly using cutting edge weapons to hijack a plane to hijack a plane yeah <laughs> you almost had it, it. Was just it was it was kind of a funny anecdote and again it goes back to when i was writing the book talking to my wife i'm like okay so that's an interesting story but who wants to hear about that you know i thought like, that how do you pack everybody it? yeah yeah i think it's pretty interesting <laughs> myself um... how, do you, how do you package that into a book it's not a whole chapter can't mm -hmm. write a whole chapter on that. That would be really stretching it out. So, ah, you, you know, found a way. It looks good. Yeah, and it resonated. All right. So the next part I have is kind of another funny one. I, I was entertained. Like it was, it was entertaining. Um, but this time it was kind of the first IDF that you'd taken, and you're all buttoned up, and then you kind of get ribbed by one of your buddies about being buttoned up. And uh, and so back to the book. It says as I approached the assembly point. And you guys, full context, this is in the middle of a chapter. I'm not going to read the whole book on here, uh, but it's worth the buy. It's worth, uh, we're going to make sure that the link's tagged in the, in the description. Go there, click it, buy it, get all the context. But back to the book here. As I approached our assembly point, I was fully buttoned up in all my gear. Kevlar strapped down on my head, vest on, weapons and ammunition on my person. Maxwell, suddenly approaching, gave me an eye roll and indicated that he thought I was an ultimate field grade nerd. Officer nerd. He was in a regular soft cover, no helmet, no vest, 
in his regular desert camouflage uniform. He gave me a good natured uh, he gave me a good natured joking shake of the hand, and confused by what uh, and I was confused by why he was giving me a hard time. I'd ask him what. Just then, almost as if time uh, as as if time for comedic effect, we heard the screaming of an incoming missile roar just twenty five feet over our head, followed by a massive impact one hundred and fifty to two hundred feet behind us, just near the front gate of the camp. All hell broke loose. This was our first experience being on the receiving end of actual indirect fire. And then you go on as 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 you guys scramble away through that. But but walk me through walk me through those emotions. Uh, uh, taking the IDF for the first time, and then that, I mean that 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 literally is like built for that. He's making fun, and here comes the rocket. And now who's who's the funny guy now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, some background on on Lieutenant Colonel Tim Maxwell. You know, he back in the early two thousands, he was the guy you know, the infantry officer of infantry officers. And everybody knew him. He was one of the top triathletes in the Marine Corps. Um, he even looked the part. I mean, we called him Skeletor because, you know, his face was angled like the cartoon. He had very thin skin. So, you know, he just looked like a chiseled uh, poster of a Marine officer. Right. And uh, he'd been an instructor at infantry school. I mean, he was like checking all the boxes, you know. And uh, I was a nerd, you know. I was an Intel nerd. And, and But I had retained all the stuff I learned at, at the basic school and all the infantry training. So we were about to launch an invasion of Iraq. So when I left the hooch that morning and packed, you know, packed up my pack and put it in the, in the Humvee and walked down to the assembly area, you know, I was like ready to go, man. Yeah. Kevlar on, helmet strap on, and M16 <laughs> on my back, and, you know, pistol and all this stuff that officers don't want to carry. Um, when I walked up, you know, he was he was just shaking his head, looking at me like, "What are you doing? We're not even started yet. Why, why are you t- Why are you wearing all that stuff?" You know, and and like it says in the book that you read, I mean, it wasn't even five seconds later that that first rocket came in that uh, the Iraqis were launching down into Kuwait and uh, exploded by the front gate, and and everybody just scattered to the bunkers under vehicles. There was dust. There was screaming. Oh, yeah. There was yelling, and. Uh, and then we reassembled back at the vehicle to start going over the map. It was, you know, five, ten minutes later. And, and this time Maxwell shows up and he's got his, his vest on and his helmet, his chin strap and his weapon. And I'm just like, how you like me now? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who's the funny boy now? I love it. Um, I'm gonna... you know, he... I'm sorry. No, no, you know, go ahead. Sorry. I, I don't know if everybody knows his story, but he, he went on to be the operations officer for the 24th U and he, he, got hit by IDF 81 millimeter, like right next to his head. Mm. So it, it, it tore him up all down his one side. And, you know, he became basically, uh, he was severely wounded. So he's had, he's, he has disabilities now, but even, even with that, he went on to found the wounded warrior regiment for the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And they named Maxwell, Maxwell Hall. Hall after him at Camp Lejeune. So he started, right. They started, he started that whole program, where instead of just kicking Marines out when they got wounded, uh, they stayed in, you know, until they went through a process, mm-hmm. maybe not full rehabilitation, but a process of, of letting them out instead of just saying, all right, you're wounded one day and the next day you're out. You know. Yeah, we do a bad job of that in the beginning, but um, it's better now for sure. And I actually, I actually retired out of Wounded Warrior out of Maxwell Hall out in front of the statue there on the East Coast Wounded Warrior Battalion, but I was just there speaking uh, last Friday, I went and spoke to uh, some wounded warriors that were there in Maxwell Hall in the back of the barracks, and um, 
and yeah, that's uh, they've done a lot better now uh, of retaining, and they're spending the right money for for the therapist and for the strength and conditioning coaches um, to 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 get those guys better for sure. It's it's got to be, in my estimation, it's the best place that you could absolutely recover, uh, even to a full recovery. And and some people are never going to make a full recovery, right? But um, it's definitely the best place in the Marine Corps to to get better. Yeah, once you're damaged. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to read your lessons learned at the end of the book in its entirety. Uh, and then after that, I just have some questions, uh, probably, probably concerning Snowden, uh, the Snowden revelations and, and then as much as he continues to come on TV and paint himself as this, uh, heroic Phoenix that rose from the ashes. And I just want to kind of dispel the rumors there and, and kind of talk about that openly. Um, because it can be confusing and it can get conflated easily. But back to the book for the lessons learned. Um, no Marine Corps operation is complete without a publication of lessons learned. In my case, the three decades of service to the U.S. Marines and also in my civilian career uh, afforded me the opportunity to learn a lot of things firsthand, and I couldn't come close to listing them all. I'll focus on the ones that had the most lasting impact on me. First and foremost is the fact that I'm a citizen of the greatest country on earth. I have seen both the, both the best and the worst of humanity in war and in peace across every continent. While we have our challenges, every American should understand that, all things considered, we have it pretty good. I learned that in America, America is the world's helpers. It often gets us into trouble, but in the end, I believe that Americans are the first to lend a helping hand to a friend and foe alike during times of crisis. The Marine Corps officer spends a significant amount of a significant amount of time planning operations that actually provide assistance to people. We are unique in this regard. The Russians and Chinese are not sending ships to help concentration camp victims or providing relief to victims of natural disasters, and they spend no time considering the effects of human collateral damage. Every time we plan an assistance operation, we did it alone or uh, we did it alone or with our NATO partners. The rest of the world either doesn't have the desire or the means to make this happen. Whether it was my involvement in the investigation at Edward Snowden's theft, of plan, uh, theft or planning military response to the Benghazi attacks, I learned that, bad, uh, that the bad story always rises to the top, while the good story behind the scenes rarely gets told. For every traitor like Snowden, there are tens of thousands of patriots within the intelligence community and the military that work tirelessly to protect the nation, not to embarrass or harm it for personal gain. But the stories of those people don't fire up the political base or sell advertisements on media outlets. They work behind the scenes, without fanfare, for year after year before disappearing into obscurity, with no interviewers knocking or book publishers calling. Through my service in Iraq and extensive work across Africa, I learned that doing the right thing and doing the easy thing are not usually the same thing. Whether it was having Marine Corps generals shout directly in my face because I told the truth about intelligence operations during OIF or dealing with other senior officers who didn't agree with the operational strategies for Africa or handling run-ins with national, nationally known political figures. Telling the truth or doing the right thing can often come at your own expense and is rarely easy to do. However, my service, travels, and experiences has taught me that most people in the world are good, but you'll never hear about them. It isn't the interesting enough to most people to read about the people who care and help. It's more interesting and scandalous to read about the troublemakers. But good folks are out there, and when the circumstances require it, they step up. Finally, my life experiences have confirmed for me that America truly is the greatest country on earth. The cliche is true, that 
only in America can somebody at the bottom of the pile lift themselves up and rise to the top. Only in America would it have been possible for this poor farm boy from a broken home who had no really pro no real prospects in life become not only a personal witness but also an actual participant in the history in the making. And I would do it again if I could. And that is the lessons learned. Again, American to the core, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Myers. So um, before before we get all the way closing out here, I'd like to talk about the Snowden situation. Now, I don't know what I, you know what all can be divulged and what all can't be divulged. But for, for a lot of people, they're confused on, is he a hero, is he a villain? And I just want to get your personal take on that since you were involved in the investigations. Yeah, so the interesting thing is that most of the stuff that we learned about Snowden actually came out in the uh, declassified congressional report that you can find online. It's very easy to find and a lot of the details that people don't know about. And the thing that's bothersome to me is he's looked at as a hero, especially by a lot of conservatives who think that he was, uh, you know, outing or leaking the fact that NSA was collecting on American citizens. But that is not the whole story. So what people don't know about him is that he had a, a lifetime history of deceit in lying about being a college graduate, not graduating high school um, in order to get jobs, you know, fake degree. And then he was in the army and he, he, he got kicked out for uh, shin splints, but he made it sound like it was some, you know, secret mission, combat wounding, you know, all, all, just basically everything you could lie about. And then mm -hmm. when he got to his uh, uh, contracting position with Booz Allen Hamilton for the U.S. government, um, he started lying there as well, falsified employee reports, all because he, he, he felt entitled to seniority and pay that he was not entitled to because he didn't have the qualifications or the experience. Mm -hmm. But that really irked him because, you know, he's kind of a sociopath and he thinks that he should get what he wants. So he started, he had an, a falling out with his employers over email about a patch, a system wide patch. And he got uh, disciplined and scolded. And it was shortly after that, that he's, he said, screw it. And he started stealing massive quantities of intelligence uh, classified data. Mm -hmm. Now, this was not just he stole information on the NSA collecting data on or eavesdropping on U.S. citizens. It was everything. So from my perspective, as the head of the Marine Corps investigation, we learned what he stole from the Marine Corps. And this was six figure number of files just from the Marine Corps. A file could be a one page intelligence report or it could be a 10,000 page spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. But it was a six-figure number of files, including the names and data on counterintelligence Marines who had both still serving in the combat zone, who were serving in the States, and many who had gotten out and been out for a decade. So it was, it was a, a whole-scale, massive uh, scrub and sweep of the JADIS, uh, joint, I think it was Joint Deployable Intelligence uh, System that he had access to among some others. I, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. And he was just st physically stealing it. And he wasn't saying, oh, I want to steal stuff about the NSA. He was physically stealing everything in the form of hard drives, downloading it to hard drives and then stealing the hard drives. Hmm. He took that information and he used it as collateral to get himself you know, into Russia 
And for years and years, he was, he is the only one who has access, the ability to release the information. You know, if the Russians kill him, they can't get the information. Mm -hmm. So that's his security. That's his insurance policy. Now, I don't know how long that insurance policy can last because eventually that, that information is no longer valid, but our, our, um, job was not only to identify what he stole and what the damage was, but how could we then rectify it? Mm -hmm. You know, so in, in some cases it was going so far as tracking down Marines who hadn't even been Marines for eight or nine years and telling them you've been compromised. Yeah. So, you know, you, you know, you shouldn't travel to this region because you're going to be a target. And, and, you know, so his, his theft went way beyond what you see in the media, mm -hmm. but he has craftily uh, sort of molded himself as a hero, like a Robin hood who did this, but it, it's so inaccurate because it would be like if you were a, um, a kidnapper who breaks into people's houses and steals their kids. And one time you broke into a house to steal a kid and you saw that the parents were drug dealers. So you turned them in. And, and now everybody thinks you're a hero because mm -hmm. you, know, yep. you turned in some drug dealers. But, but they don't talk about the fact that you're a pedophile kidnapper who broke into a home. Mm -hmm. The guy was, a, was stealing. He was you know, a traitor committing espionage. And it just so happens that a small portion of what he stole is, is what everybody has gotten spun up about and now painted him as a hero. Mm-hmm. But and he says, well, I started stealing when General Clapper went on in front of uh, the reason I started. I did this is because General Clapper went in front of Congress and lied to the American people and said that we don't spy on Americans. But the problem with that is he started stealing stuff, you know, six, eight weeks before that, hmm. before that guy ever went on TV. So this was a personal so, vendetta. And a little bit of sociopath. It was a personal vendetta because he didn't. Yeah. He didn't, he wasn't getting what he wanted in his contractor career. Mm -hmm. he, he thought he was entitled to be a boss. He didn't understand why other people were his boss. He felt he was smarter than them and he was pissed off. And uh, again, all of these details are in the report that was released mm -hmm. by the OIG Congress. You can find it online, all those details. Check. Wow. And so like, yeah, from our perspective out here, not doing, you know, due diligence and looking those files up, it, they he or whoever was helping him has done a good job at saying you know at framing that as oh i didn't take all this stuff i was just trying to expose what they were doing to you and then everybody gets defensive i know i even kind of fell a little bit victim to it and then as i was going through my career or as uh, through my education i had uh one of my instructors was counsel to the joint chiefs of staff on homeland security and I just kind of got an opened up a dialogue with, with my professor. And he was like, you know, he's a complete traitor. He started telling me all these things that I hadn't heard before. And I'm like, I was kind of under that impression, uh, that Robin hood impression. Like, well, I'm glad I know what he told me, but nobody talked about all the other things that he took and all the other leverage. And, and then you talk about in your book, how it's a little bit personal to you because there was some, uh, let's say security failures. I, I want to say, uh, with your parents, right. That maybe exposed some of your, uh, was is there something in the book about exposing some of the assets that you're maybe you're either your mother, or your father was working with. Yeah. So as I say in the book, they're, they're no longer covered employees. They're, mm -hmm. both, they're both retired, mm -hmm. you know, but my parents were both covered CIA operatives, case officers. Uh, my stepfather might've done some other stuff besides case officers, some, uh, you know, undercover type, whatever they call mm -hmm. it in the agency. 
Um, but she was a Russian case officer. And so what a case officer does is convinces people to spy on their country, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So she had personal contact and personal relationships with a lot of Russians who had been convinced by the Central Intelligence Agency to provide information on their country. And um, so she knew who these people were. She knew about their families and all of this. And there was a spy uh, named Aldrich Ames in the 80s or 90s, I think, who gave up all of these Russian contacts. He was a double agent for the Russians. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot of my mother's cases were executed, mm -hmm. you know, disappeared. These, so these were people that she had convinced. That's how a case officer works. They convince people mm -hmm. and so, like a salesman. And so she had convinced these people to come to our side and it ended up getting them all killed when this spy divulged all their identities. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this whole Snowden thing was personal to me because he, he really did the same thing only on a much grander scale because of the volume of things that he stole. Right. And, and to the best of my knowledge, like he hasn't trickled everything that we know that he has stolen out yet. Is there more things? Or do we know of more things that he has the ability to release that he has not released to, to Russia or to the world? Um. That gets into the classified realm, but yeah, he, he has a lot of information. Yeah, and, and that's clearly um, why he's still alive and safe. Yeah, and it, but it, it is obviously becoming dated. This is you know seven, six or seven years now mm. since mm. this happened. Um, but yeah, he still has information. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's uh that kind of wraps the Snowden part up for me. I've been really wanting to talk about that for a while because I have like even. I've done some research and obviously didn't do enough, but um, it did come out completely different than than what uh, than what than what it was in reality. There was a lot of the Robin the Hood stories. Mm -hmm. Shows the influence that the media and social media can really have. I mean, he's he's become a master at Twitter and you know all the from the safety of his residence in Moscow, he can influence everybody into believing that he's some sort of Robin Hood hero. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So um, at the end, at the end, I like to give our guests uh, the last parting shots. You can, you know, address America in general, anybody that you want to address. But what would be your message to people right now? We find ourselves in a tumultuous uh, political, geopolitical environment uh, with world powers moving troops around and things of that nature. And uh, not to get too in the in the weeds, but if you had a message to America um, or to the fighting men of America, either either or, what what would be your message to them? To stay the course, obviously, because it's rough waters, right? I mean, if if you're a person who joined the service and you're serving now, and you had one idea of how it was going to be, it's obviously not going that way because of the the military being so distracted by social issues and. Uh, misdirected uh, threat analysis, you know, climate change being our biggest threat or extremism being our biggest threat when it's so very obvious that China and Russia are our biggest threats. So, you know, it's, I'm so glad I retired when I did because it was right at the cusp of that stuff starting. Um, I was able to be a Marine and be focused on real threats, you know, Mm -hmm. and not be distracted by the social issues and the, the diversity pushes and, and all of those things that just seem to be, I can't imagine being in uniform right now and having to deal with that. So 
my message to people would be to stay the course, you know, and, and if you're, if you're contemplating joining the military, um, you know, it, it's an honorable task. It's an honorable service, but it's, it's a challenging time. So you really need to do your homework on the right time to join or the right service to join, you know, to try and navigate those waters. But, but one thing I wanted to add, because you had mentioned it earlier offline about your particular case in Afghanistan with your translator about how I came to find you and, you know, try to get your translator out, which unfortunately in our case wasn't successful, but mm -hmm. there was, there was other cases just like yours guys and girls from TV um, that I tracked down. And the, the reason is because it, it was just the right time and the right place in the circumstances that I happened to be tied in with the and I happened to be tied into an officer at Transcom who was managing the C-17 aircraft. Mm -hmm. And so when all of this was unfolding, uh, at the same time, I was getting messages from friends. You know, we all got them. I'm sure you got them. The, the chain emails where people were like, hey, can you help? Do you know anybody that can help my translator? Mm. I was getting those as well from people I served with. And at the same time, I got a message from the Transcom guy saying, hey, John, I'm managing those aircraft you know, just so you know. And then I got a message from a Marine who was down there like, hey, we're, we're, we're doing the mission. The U.S. State Department doesn't know what the heck they're doing. They don't even know who we're supposed to evacuate. So if you, if you hear of anybody that needs to be evacuated, you know, let me know. It was a single point of contact I had there. He was running the whole thing. He, he said, if you have people that you need to get out, send me their names because I'm trying to build lists and the State Department doesn't know who to get out, you know. So, it was the it was the Marines on the ground running the show would send me messages 24 hours a day. Hey, we saw this guy on Fox News. Track him down so we can get his translator. <laughs> so, you know, I did that for um, Dakota Myers translator. I did it for a, a number of translators, other people who were on Fox News, a couple an army couple out that were on Fox News and um, got their translator out. And it, so that's what happened in this case. They contacted me, said, track this gentleman down. We saw him on Fox News. And that's when I sent to the DM. Gotcha. And we tried to get him. And then the, the, the cool thing was I started providing all the names to the Marines. So we populated their database, six, 7,000 names, and they would actually go get the people, you know, and they would devise these, these crazy plans where tell them to show up at this, don't go to the gates, tell them to show up at this point on the wall, like some random point on the wall, tell them, you know, to wear a purple shirt or whatever, and that, then yeah, stand close to the wall, stand close to the wall. And then in the middle of the night, you know, some Americans would scoop them up and pull them over. And that's how we were getting people out. Mm -hmm. So all this information, I did a lot of media at the time about it. And all this information that they got out 124,000 people, it's, it's not accurate. It's not accurate because we literally had to pull people over the wall to get them in there. So there was nowhere that buses with tens of thousands of people were queuing up and going into the airfield. Talk mm -hmm. to anybody who was involved. It was impossible to get people over the wall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and one, one final point on that is like, what does this say to the rest of the world about the next time we need translators and helpers in a country where we need to go into? Like, what does it say to them? 
who's going to want to help us when, when this is what we do? We spend 20 years there fostering a promise of independence and at least a way out if it all falls apart and then we leave you and the equipment to, to show who you are to, <laughs> to these people. Like, what does that say? And, and what does that say, you know, about us? What's that say about our ethics and our morals as the shining city on the hill? Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, the, effort can, the efforts continue. And to some extent, they still are going on today, although now it's more a State Department long-term, get your paperwork in order type thing. But in the, in the weeks after the U.S. left, the efforts continued. We had other things we were doing, you know, on the down low, um, getting people out. But Absolutely. again, it was at that point, it was very difficult. It was like one or two here or there. It seemed like there was hope, you know, at least when we would communicate, you know, once a day or so trying to trying to keep keep frosty. It There was hope until until the the ID. And when they blew things up, it's like gates started getting sealed. And the it seemed like the give a fuck about who was outside of HK went way down. And like, I understand that, but when you still have Americans and you still have people that should be able to come in, like, what do you do then? Right. And, and I think a lot of that goes to the planning where we're coming out of, instead of, you know, instead of Bagram, we're going to go out of Hamakar's eye, you know, and there's tons of different things that we could investigate. And I'm sure they will investigate and figure that, you know, out the whole thing. One more question I had would be, you know, like, do you know at what point we started uh, negotiating with the Taliban instead of the uh, Afghani government that we had in place? It was after August 16th and the C-17 incident. Okay. Um, because we needed, they, I say we, I wasn't involved. They needed to establish uh, security at, you know, uh, the airport in Kabul in order to get those aircraft in and out. So it was after that debacle on August 16th with people falling out of the airplane. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, you know, I'm actually writing a second book right now on the Afghanistan withdrawal and the private efforts. Uh, okay. Trying to work my way through that because there's just so, so many stories. I mean, you know, we had a bus, two buses, um, full of women and children, pregnant women, handicapped children. And and again, when I talk, I wasn't one of those people who was just evacuating, evacuating en masse, like whoever wanted to go. All the people I was working with were people identified to me by people like you. Mm -hmm. You know, this was my interpreter. This is his wife and child. And so, they, okay, I'm going to get them out. They're on my list. So we would, we had two buses full of women and children, pregnant women of translators and American citizens. We had American citizens on the bus, just everything. We had to negotiate with the Taliban to let us approach the airport. There were payments involved, not from us, not from Americans. There was payments from people on the bus involved to bribe the Taliban to let them through, which took all night long, but was able to be managed. Mm -hmm. And then we got to the gate and the Americans were the obstacle, the State Department and the military folks, not the not the Marines, not the Marines doing the work, but this the leadership. And what do you mean by that? They were the problem. They wouldn't let us in. I had American citizens on the bus, as well as uh, pregnant American citizens with American citizen children and a, a kid with spina bifida. They were on the bus for 36 hours 
with you know no facilities so everybody just had to go in their pants if they had to do their business and the americans didn't show up they were supposed to show up with a list and let us in and they just said screw it we're not showing up so i got on the phone with a military commander i won't say who it was but he was downrange and we literally got into a screaming match about whether he was going to let my bus in let my buses in mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was pretty ugly. We had a nice five minute screaming match with a lot of profanities. And in the end, he just hung up and the buses never got in. The people never got out. And what's the why? What's the why? Well, the, the, the overarching why is because the administration had made their position known, which was nothing to see here. It's not a big deal. Everybody's overreacting. You know, it's all going to work out fine. And that trickles down through the military leadership, as we talked about earlier, because they don't want to jeopardize their careers. You know, mm-hmm. So they were not going to budge from that position. And everything was fine. Nothing to see here. That was their position. So th- those people, those buses, we drove them away. We dropped the people on the side of the road, including the kid who's buying a bifida who was in a wheelchair. And, you know, some of those people we got out in later efforts, but some we didn't, you know, but and these were all pre-approved American citizens as well as translator families and translators. Mm-hmm. It was ugly all around. Yeah, I know at the time, you know, I gave hope up after the bombing uh, on getting on getting my guy out because he didn't have his paperwork in order. Uh, they didn't have his SIV paperwork given to him before you know our embassy fell and he didn't even know our embassy didn't have people in it when i started contacting and said he's waiting for a call from the embassy about his paperwork and i said man the embassy ain't there like it's there (laughs) but there's nobody there nobody's emailing you anything we need to do evasive action right now with you because this is going to crumble and fall apart and then that's how it kind of happened you know and how many of them are there that had the credentials Met the the obligation and the responsibility to their end of the bargain and should have got out of there that are still stuck over there right now. I still talk to my guy and uh, the last report for him, from him was that he hadn't been outside in nearly three weeks because it's too dangerous and that um, uh, food was getting scarce in, in the greater Kabul area for everybody and the people that had it had the guns. And that uh, there's a mass flux, of, you know, of Chinese in the area now for for uh, for elements and, and, and resources from the ground and uh, just things just completely deteriorating um, from from the last, you know, two, three, four months ago. It just continues to get bad, you know, and now we don't have a big presence there. And so that can't be, you know, overly reported. And so. Um, these things continue to go on without us and there's different parts of the world that testament to the end of your book where you say through your experiences you can hands down say that we live in the in the greatest of them all and uh that that's something that echoed on this side from both of us like people can't fathom what happens and we talk about that in the podcast is like kabul falls apart and this the american people finally see for the first time the non-romanticized version of war and the actual realities of these things going on is, is is brought front and center and they lose their minds. Like you said in the beginning, they lose their minds. And it's like, well, what did you think they were doing for the last 20 years? You thought this was all a picnic? And um, I think it's necessary that it's in the open and it's necessary to see it just to, just to humble people once in a while and say, hey, you know, at the end of the day, you live in the greatest place at the greatest time ever. 
So, you know, put a smile on your face and be a little happier. Try to treat people a little nicer. It's true. You speak truth. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jonathan, again, uh, Matt, you got anything? Any any parting shots? Anything from the back? I just want to say thank you for coming on. I mean, I enjoyed the book, and I'm pretty hard to please when it comes to books. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I love hearing good feedback, so. Absolutely. Very entertaining. And I know I didn't get the inscribed copy from you, but one day we'll have to figure out how I can send this to you and get your autograph on it for me uh, to have in my in my personal stash. And anybody out there, I'm going to do the shameless plug right now. You see what it looks like, American to the core. You've got a little taste of it here. And uh, and like I said, we covered only just a scratch uh, uh, the surface there and there's tons of great uh, sea stories and different things uh, talked about in the book here that are definitely worth your time and de- definitely worth the money it's priced to move um, uh, outside of that Jonathan again I couldn't thank you more enough from uh, bottom of my heart from choices not chances for me and Matt and all of our listeners I know that they're going to appreciate uh, real and authentic information coming out and um, and I couldn't be happier with how it turned out so I appreciate you and I guess we'll end it there yep thank you all right. I really appreciate you guys having me on. I enjoyed it. Uh, it was really great. I'll get you an inscribed copy of the book. I have a big stack sitting over here of hardback, so I'll get you one right away. Just send me your address. Perfect. Perfect. Jonathan, uh, from Choices Not Chances, we, we appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Semper Fi. Semper Fi. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger, we have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking a building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah.